Man, it's great to be back here. Uh, as Maria said, my name is John. I'm a pastor on staff here. And since February, as you know, we opened up the new campus in, uh, in Miramar. Man, and it's exciting. Uh, we see new people come from that area. So I just wanted to let you guys know uh, the efforts that I know a lot of you put in here uh, to make sure that that campus happened. And it's doing great. But you know what? It's just awesome to be here again. So um, let me... Uh, let me get into the message and let me start by telling you a little story about when I was four years old. And uh, when you're four, that's the age where, you know, the TV is your babysitter. And uh, uh, that's when parents go to work and they do chores and they need something to keep their children's attention. So what my parents would do is they would put us in the master bedroom and watch, have us watch TV. Well, in there, in the master bedroom, was also a box of chocolates where the TV sat on the bureau was a giant box of chocolates. And a child can salivate for only so long before they get curious. And so we would look into the box and we'd see the chocolates, you know, we'd kind of touch them and like look at them. And then before you knew it, we took a few. So we ate them. And, and here's what we tend to do when we take something is that we move stuff around so there's not like a big gap so it looks like they're still all there, right? So we kind of... We kind of moved them around and stuff, but given enough time, uh, because we weren't very strategic, we didn't work as a team, uh, it, it came to our attention that suddenly there was only one chocolate left in the whole box. And you can't like hide 20 spaces. So uh, that day at uh, dinner, my, uh, my parents brought to our attention the empty box of chocolates, and they said, listen, these are very special chocolates. They're for people who are on diets. And they used and introduced a word to me that I had never heard at four years old. The word was laxative. So uh, then they began to describe what our young, frail bodies were going to be going through over the next hour or two. And then they said, would anyone like to tell us who uh, ate some of those chocolates? And of course... We were eager to tell and eager to try to receive some help. So uh, we all raised our hands, we confessed. And then, of course, what they did is they left us a little bit of time and then they revealed to us to relieve the tension that they were actually just chocolates. So they had devised this plan to simply catch us in the act. Now, you probably have a similar story to this, right? You guys probably took in, you may have taken something in your life and then you got caught. And you learned a valuable lesson, didn't you? That you shouldn't steal. And that's what we do. We teach our friends. We teach our children, I mean, uh, all the time as they're growing up that it's not right to take something that's not yours. However, though we teach everyone learns this at, at our childhood, um, it doesn't seem to be bearing out. Society is telling us different. Listen to this. Every three seconds, someone is stealing in the USA. Every seven seconds, someone commits larceny. Every 12 seconds, someone commits burglary. And every 23 seconds, someone steals someone's automobile. I mean, the time it took me to just tell you that, probably every one of those occurred, and some of them multiple times. Statistics also tell us that one out of every four people has taken something from someone else or stolen. So like if you're looking in your aisle and there's more four of you, look down the aisle to your right and your left... One of you is a culprit, you know. Hold on to your Bibles, people. How many of you have experienced identity theft in here? Anybody? I see some hands. Yes, it's very common nowadays to lose your identity. Suddenly you don't know who you are. No, that's not what happens. Every three seconds, an identity is stolen. Someone's uh, identity is stolen. And there's a new wave of robbery when it comes to banks, banking. 
uh, used to be with guns and explosives and safe cracking. Uh, now the, um, the method and tools for stealing are Macs and PCs because we can rob online the banks. So this is happening. All these new things are occurring. Did you know that the Holiday Inn announced that they lost $560,000 worth of towels in one year? I mean, that's a lot of towels. You know, like, hey, listen, I don't know how that towel got in my luggage, honestly. I really don't. Um, Do you know what the most stolen book is? The Bible. That's right, I heard the murmuring. It is, it's the Bible. I mean, people steal the Bible. You know, they interviewed a guy in his bookstore and he says, yeah, well, it's probably because a leather mound Bible and such goes for like 35 bucks. So people are just taking, hey, I want the Word of God that's going to tell me not to steal. I steal it. Um, I was also reading where this guy, you know, he, he uh, filed a complaint with his prison because he was in prison because someone stole his new underwear. If you're in prison, new underwear is a hot commodity. I just want you to know because it's rare there. Um, listen, we're in a study called uh, Ten Words. It's a study of the Ten Commandments. And uh, today we're talking about the Eighth Commandment. And I guess you can already guess what it is, right? It simply says, you shall not steal. That's right. This is one of the commandments that we look at and we just kind of skim over it. We just kind of breeze right through it because, um, after all, uh, I haven't taken a car. I never jacked a car. I never took somebody's uh, purse. I haven't uh, committed armed robbery. I haven't done uh, insider trading. And so we say, hey, listen, this really doesn't apply to me. But today, however, I think that we're going to learn a few things that God wants to teach us through this verse. And so I'm going to ask you right now to pull out your outline that's in your program that looks like this so that you can follow along as we uh, learn what God has to say to us. And the first thing is, in your outline, God wants me to enjoy the fruit of my labor. God wants me to enjoy the fruit of my labor. You see, there is honor in working. Work was not a consequence of the fall of man. In fact, before Adam and Eve ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, God, he was working. Man worked. Listen to what it says in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You see, Adam was placed in the garden after God fi- finished it and he said, okay, now you watch over it and you tend it. Even before they messed up, there was work. Before they made a mistake and they wrecked everything, there was work. Yes, even in paradise, man was working from the very beginning. But Adam was not the first worker. He wasn't. You know who was? God was the first worker. In Genesis chapter 2, 2, it says, On the seventh day God had finished His work of creation, so He rested from all His work. God created the whole universe. God created, um, just picture, imagining Him, creating everything. He created the stars and the angels and the heavens and the earth and all the animals that are on the earth and all the weird things that we see in space with our telescope. God was working. And God, because He is a fellow worker, endows work with an intrinsic dignity. And we're created in God's image, aren't we? So we are created to be fellow workers with God. And you may be thinking, are you serious, John? You're telling me that God wants me to work? Come on. I'm thinking about when I get to heaven and I'm like floating on that cloud and I'm playing a harp and eating bonbons that, you know, I'm never going to work. You mean there's going to be work in heaven? And the answer is yes, there's actually work in heaven. However, work is not, it's become corrupted, it's not what it was intended to be. 
You see, work has become for us synonymous with labor and toil, right? When we say, man, I've got to go to work again. That job was tough. It was a lot of work. And it's burdensome. It's, it's hard. That's what work, the word, has become for us. But that's not what work wasn't originally intended to be. You see, work was to give man dignity. It was to give man a purpose. Something happened after the fall, though. The work was not a consequence of the fall. Work became difficult. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through pain, toil, uh, painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, dust you will return. So now you know why you are constantly fighting weeds in your lawn. You can blame that on Adam and Eve. At least that's what I do every Saturday when I'm cutting it because I have lots of weeds. But before the fall, everything that Adam did succeeded. Wherever he planted, it grew. There was no disappointment. There was no wasted effort. There's no failures that we experience when we try to work. You see, there was no pesticides back then. They didn't need them. They didn't need growth hormones to make the cows or the chickens or whatever grow bigger. But work became very hard after God cursed the earth because the earth would not then yield to us. But I mean, who wants to work hard, right? Do you guys want to? I don't want to work hard. And we live in a world where we're used to getting what we want whenever we want, isn't it? It's true. We've got instant messaging. We've got instant bill pay, instant cocoa. Whenever I want it, we get it. Listen, I want to get it now without effort, without the wait. I mean, why can't I have it today? We long to live like we lived in Eden before the fall. Well, we can. See, that's the attractive thing about stealing, right? We don't have to work for it. I can skip the curse. It could be just like it used to be in Eden, where we didn't have to work for anything. I mean, after the fall, what happened to Adam? Then he's like, he's all confused. Like where he plants, it's not really working. He has to toil and he has to work. And it's getting difficult. I mean, if he saw something growing in his neighbor's yard, right, in his neighbor's garden, all he had to do was take it. That's all he had to do. Instant gratification. But the Bible tells us something else. Listen to this. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. And see, this is God's plan for you and me when it comes to possessions. God's prescribed method for you and I to acquire something is through work. That's the way we truly enjoy what God has given us. Now, there are people who have made careers out of not working. Do you know anybody like that? A few of you? Maybe? Okay. I think every one of us knows one or two people like that. I have a relative, and she was married to someone who had a back injury 16 years ago. And when they first met, I mean, this guy was, you know, excited about life, he was confident, he had goals, he had dreams, but then he gets, he has his back injured, he's a plumber by trade, and so he goes on workman's comp. The problem is, he never got off workman's comp. After he got the surgery and they fused his back and he could work again, he didn't start working. He didn't go to school to learn a new trade in case that was too difficult for him to do in his condition. He didn't do anything. And after 16 years of time, it slowly ate away at his confidence. It slowly ate away at him and he slipped into a depression. 
to the point where he didn't feel like he could go out and get a job or could work. It got to the point where he couldn't even take care of himself. He couldn't even take care of their son. And ultimately it ended up causing their divorce. You see, oftentimes when we're not working hard, when we're not laboring, it becomes a depression and an anxiety to us. You see, and that's not what God wants for you and me. He wants to enjoy the fruit of our labor. He wants us to work. But stealing is a forbidden method of owning something. You see, um, if everyone stole, we wouldn't produce anything, would we? We would just be moving stuff around. Like if I went to my neighbor and I saw his lawnmower out on his lawn and I like took it and then I did my lawn, right? And then when I'm done with it, my other neighbor comes over and he steals the lawn mower and like all the whole neighbor sharing one lawn mower, right? He's like, hey, we can't do that because labor is not going to, without labor, it's not going to produce anything. If we steal it, we're just sharing the same stuff. We all work to add resources that are available. And God says, when it comes to stealing, one of the cures is to start working. Start working. But the second thing that God wants us to know is God wants my life to make a difference. He wants my life to make a difference. Um, We live in a world that offers one thing, but it delivers another. When I was uh, younger, I used to have a comic book collection. I was a very little kid, and I used to read through my comic book collection and uh, my comic books, and then I would see like these ads in the comics, and they were always like offering certain types of uh, you know toys, things, whatever you wanted to order. And there was this one that I was very excited about, and I have a picture of it because I actually made a photocopy from one of the old comic books that I had. And I want to read it to you for a minute. This one caught my attention. Just imagine your friend's shock when they walk into the room and see the monster reaching out. Bigger than life, Frankenstein. The original man-made monster, that creation of evil genius that terrorized the world. A giant seven feet tall. His eyes glow eerily as his hand reaches out. And awful and sinister as the wildest nightmare. Yes, Frankenstein is seven feet tall in authentic colors on durable polyethylene and so lifelike you'll probably find yourself talking to him. Wouldn't you be surprised if he answers? Comes complete with eyes that glow even in the pitch dark for a special chill. Man, when I saw that, you know, and Halloween's coming up and everything, I'm like, man, that'll be so awesome. I have a seven-foot monster in my room. I'd like invite my friends over and I'd like hide them in the closet and I'd be like, hey, could you go get my jacket? And they open the door and, whoa, hey! And they get all scared. I'd be like, that'd be so great! And it's only a dollar! So I saved up a dollar and I sent away, oh, and 25 cents for shipping and handling. But listen, when you shipped away back then, you know, delivery is what, three to six days? Back then it was three to six months. You guys remember that? Snail mail took forever. So there I am. I go to the I go to the post. I know I go to our mailbox every day, and I'm like, "Where's Where's my monster? Where's my monster?" You know, and nothing. And then finally, one day, this little box comes, and I'm like, oh, "Put that aside. Where's my monster? I'm looking for this huge, you know, box." Because I'm wanting my monster to get there, and then I'm like, "Oh man, it didn't come." So I open up this little box, you know, this little tiny box. I open it up, and inside are these folded pieces of plastic. You know what polyethylene is? I didn't know this, man. I thought it was a huge monster. Polyethylene is the same material you make a trash bag out of. It was sheets of plastic with Frankenstein printed on it. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. And it wasn't even seven feet tall. It was two pieces you had to put together to make him seven feet tall. And his glowing eyes were stickers that glow in the dark that you pasted right there on his eyeballs. I'm like, man, I'm so ripped off. I was so disappointed. I'm like, this sucks. Listen, God does not want us to be like that. He wants us 
to not promise and then not deliver. He wants us to deliver. Listen to what it says here in Titus. It says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. God's saying, be the type of worker where it's attractive, where people want to know who you are. They want to know about your God. They want to know about you. Deliver. But the question is, do we deliver? Statistics tell us that 79% of workers admit to either stealing or contemplating stealing from their employer. 79%. Of those 79%, listen to this, businesses lose $600 billion a year due to employee theft. $600 billion a year. That's amazing. Listen, CNN reports that one out of three businesses fails. They go out of business due to employee theft. Listen, there are a number of ways that you and I can actually steal from our employer. We think, oh, I didn't do the embezzlement thing that everybody did. I didn't steal a car. I didn't take this whatever. I mean, there are different ways. I mean, some of us are taking home the office supplies, right? You, you have an office at work that you go to and then you have one at home because somehow a lot of this stuff migrated to yours. You've got two offices now, Right? Some of us are calling in sick when we're really not sick. Well, I don't want to use my vacation day, that's for me, but I do want to take a sick day off. What about personal phone calls? We shouldn't be calling at work. You know, a lot of us, we get on the internet, right? And they have like, these things so you actually can't get on the internet. But man, I like to check Facebook, right? I can't, I can't not check Facebook, I have to do that. Listen, a lot of us, we're cutting out on the time clock, maybe. We're leaving a little bit early, we're cutting that edge. We think that one thing, one small thing, is not going to make a difference. Is that really stealing? I mean, it's just a small thing. 74% of people say that they don't mind taking something from someone else if they don't miss it. I don't mind if they're not going to miss it. And most of us think when it comes to stealing this commandment, the eighth commandment, at first we said, no way, I, I don't really steal. But maybe we do steal, but we just rationalize it a little bit more. Now, I know it's going to get a little uncomfortable. How many times do we download that song for free off the Internet when we know we should be paying? But it's free. I mean, I was able to do it. How about, man, I know my car had a transmission leak, but when I sold it and I didn't really tell them, but they never asked me. They didn't ask. Come on. That wasn't really misrepresenting anything. I didn't, I didn't tell them. They just didn't, they couldn't figure it out. I don't know. How about when we... Took that deduction off our taxes, maybe, that we shouldn't have taken out. Come on, Uncle Sam, he taxes me everywhere. Really, this money belongs to me. I mean, he taxes me when I earn it. He taxes me when I spend it. He taxes me when I die. Come on. Is that really stealing? What about punching in for eight hours of work when we only do like four hours of work? You know, they should have given me a raise a long time ago. They owe this to me and it's good for me to take it. I, I worked for them so hard the other day for at least two hours straight. You know what? I know I misrepresented this, but it was misrepresented to me when I bought it. They told me it was going to be this, so I'm just going to pass it along. I didn't do anything. They did it. I'm just the middleman. It wasn't my fault. You know, after all, I mean, it just seems fair, right, that I'm able to do this. I mean, they charge so much, so I should just be able to take it. 
I mean, no one's going to miss it. I deserve it. Besides, you know what? Everybody else is doing it. Everyone. I should be able to. You see, the interesting thing about the Eighth Commandment is it marked a new division within the Ten Commandments. The first five of the Ten Commandments were about God and our relationship to Him, as we've been learning. The second five were about our relationship to God. But the first seven commandments, the penalty for breaking those according to the law was death. The penalty was death. But when you get to the Eighth Commandment, it's not death. It's retribution. Retribution. You see, the Old Testament was very specific about stealing because God wanted people to treat other people fairly. He wanted the people of Israel to be a different society than all the other societies that were around them. He said things like, don't have differing weights. What does that mean? He goes, well, don't have differing weights. When you go to sell your grain or whatever it is and you have a set of weights, let it be accurate, meaning five pounds should be five pounds. Don't make it four pounds. If they only get four pounds and you get the five pounds amount of money, Don't do that. Don't misrepresent. Don't cheat people. Don't move a boundary stone from your land. They had watchtowers in the evening so that people wouldn't come out and sneak and move the boundary line of where your property and my property was. So you didn't come out the next day and say, dude, what's up? Wasn't wasn't that that stream on my side of the property? You know, like, uh, I don't know. The boundary lines are here. Must not be. You know? And, uh, it said things like, don't withhold money from somebody when it's due. If you owe them, pay them. Don't withhold it. Don't even keep it overnight. Not one night, just pay them. God wanted this to be a society that treated people fairly. You see, most of the cultures at that time of Israel, they didn't really have laws. They lived as they wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do, whatever was right in their own eyes. And yet they would look on at Israel and say, wow, this is like this peaceful community where people get along. And if anybody makes a mistake, they even had one that was dealt with negligence. Oh, if I left my gate open and my wild boar, you know, my ox got out and he was kind of mean and he beat up somebody or another ox, so I had to replace it because it was my fault because I should have shut the gate. Or if I started a fire and that caused a problem. He's like, look at, see these guys, when something goes wrong, they make it right. And so that the other nations, all of them would look on and be like, man, I want to be in Israel. I want to live like that. I don't want to have to lock my door at night. I want to relax. I want to live in this place of peace. And God says, this is what I want, an attractive culture for you people. And it was for a while until they began to break this commandment. Listen to what Ezekiel says. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap for me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for people who will stand in the gap. He's looking for people who will do things right. And God is challenging you and I today, and He says, will you be like everyone else, or will you be different? Will you be that person that's going to stand in the gap? Will you live a life that's attractive to other people? You know, we live kind of in an age where corruption is really the norm. Now imagine with me, if you will, you had a wad of money. And some of you are like, man, I I really do have to imagine that because I don't have one. And you are in your car and you park at the mall and you set that wad of money on uh, on your passenger's seat and you leave the doors unlocked in your car. Now, to say you forgot it there or whatever, your doors are unlocked, you go into the mall. When you come back out, would you be more surprised if it was stolen or if it was still there? 
if it was still there, right? So what are we saying about our culture? Yeah, I don't trust anybody. That's why we lock our doors. Because the norm of the culture today is, man, if I see it, I take it. That's mine. Even if it's in your, it's your property or even if it's in your place. Man, isn't it interesting that what really stands out today is honesty? And God says, listen, I want you to stand out. I want your life to be different. Be honest. Don't be corrupt. Don't steal. Do what's right. How many times do you walk back into the cash register, lady at the cash register, you go, you even gave me too much money. They're like, what? <laughs> Who are you and where did you come from? What do you want from me? You're trying to rip me off, right? You know, they don't even believe that you're trying to be honest. And God says, listen, I want a place and you to be a people that makes God attractive to other people because you are not doing it like everybody else. Listen, the third thing is God wants me to learn to trust in Him. You see, stealing is really about trusting ourselves. When we can't get it the right way, we decide to take it. We decided that this is what we need, this is what we deserve, or we should have. You see, the fundamental thing that we are saying when we steal, treat, or misrepresent is that we're saying, God, you are not providing for me in the way that I think you should be provided. I should be provided for. You see, you're not going to take over, so I'm going to take control. If you're not going to provide for me, then I am. But God wants us to trust in Him. And God is a way of teaching us to trust in Him. It's called giving. In fact, He calls it the tithe. Now, the tithe meant a 10%. Some of you know that word. Some of you know. And God says, listen, I give you 100%. I've given you the ability. I've given you the opportunity. I've given you everything you need to bring stuff into your home. And he says, I give you 100% of that, and I'm asking you to give me back 10. I'm asking you to trust me, because I will bless the 90. And God says this. He actually says, when we don't do this, we're stealing from Him. Listen to this verse in Malachi. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. God actually says we're stealing from Him. I mean, well, does God really need my money? I mean, doesn't He own everything anyway? What's the deal? Because God is teaching us to trust Him. I mean, can you trust God? Most of us think when we hear this verse, man, I could never give 10%. Do you realize how much that is? That's 10%. You haven't seen my budget. You don't know how much debt I owe. You, I, there's no way I could do this. Let me ask you a question. Is God, is your God, the God who created the universe, the God who created everything and can do anything? Is He? And we say, yes, I believe that. But sometimes we don't live like we believe that. Do you ever wonder why God does miracles in people's lives? And He acts in ways, but maybe not in ours? Could it be that we are never giving God the chance? See, when life gets tough and we see something, we say, oh, okay, I'm going to take over. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take that myself. And we take it into our hands. And then we struggle in our own wisdom to get it done. Never putting ourselves in a position where God can actually work. You see, you won't see God working when you're the one making everything happen in your own life. 
You know, we hear these incredible stories from these missionaries, these miraculous things they do. It's because they put themselves out there. They put themselves in a place where the only thing they have is to trust on God. And then we see God work in incredible ways. You see, this verse in Malachi, Malachi, it comes with a test. It says, see if I won't bless you. See if I won't open the windows of heaven. See if I won't do amazing things in your life. And you may have heard it said before that this is the only place in the Bible where God actually asks you to test Him. Try me now in this and see. Today is an opportunity for you and me to see God work in our lives. Pull out your connection cards for a moment. You guys, Maria was talking about them. Pull out your connection card. And you'll see on the left-hand side, second one up, there's a thing that says, Take the 90-Day Challenge. See, God is asking us to put Him to the test. And every time we do the Tithe Challenge, we ask people to write us letters. The 90-Day Tithe Challenge is simply this, that we say, you know what, God, if you are true, and you're real, and your word is true, then you're going to do what your word says. So I can trust you. If I tithe, I'm going to see what you do in my life. And so people check that off, and they agree to do it for 90 days. And then people send us letters in the mail. Email. Pastor Bob has a stack of them for what God has done in someone's life, in a person's life. Listen to this one. I asked him to give me one um, this week. It says, Dear Pastor Bob, the following letter is to inform you of my experience with the Tithe Challenge commitment I took a few weeks ago. I took this decision to put my faith into practice. I'm very happy with the outcome. She goes on to explain a bunch of things that are going on in her life, difficult situations, but then she says, I must confess it was the greatest feeling ever. Even though I was experiencing a million things, health and financial situations at the time, I always made my tithe. On December of 2009, I was surprised. My boss gave me the good news that they had raised my annual salary and I got a decent bonus as well. Who got a raise at the end of last year? I was not expecting this at all. Remember, I had missed a few days or weeks from my surgery and treatment, but God is great. I'm still at my mother's house, but I know that with faith, God will provide all my needs. It's just a matter of being patient. It's not uh, on my time, it's on His. I've learned this the hard way. Listen, if you're thinking, why can't that be me? It can be. Take God up on His challenge. When you sign, when you check that off this week, we'll send you encouraging letters throughout the weeks. We'll also send you a book called The Treasure Principle that you'll get in the mail. It'll help you understand this a little bit more clearly. Listen, we live, need to live in a place of trust where God has the actual opportunity to work in our lives. And then when it happens because you trusted Him, you'll actually know it was Him and not you. Do you know where, why God challenges this area of our lives? Do you know why? Because money is one of the most important deciding factors in our society today. Think about this. When you went to buy your home, what was one of the biggest factors? How much it cost. When you go to get a job, you're looking up and find out what are they paying? What's the salary? Many of you in your homes don't have 70-inch flat-screen TVs. Why? Because of the price. And maybe some of you do. I don't know. But listen, it's one of the things, the major things, the major factors that help us make decisions in our lives today. And that's why it's such a sensitive area. And maybe you've heard it said that the most sensitive nerve in our body is the one that runs from our back pocket to our heart. Right? No one wants anyone to tell them what to do with their money. I don't. I don't want God to tell me what to do with my money. 
But God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. God wants you to put Him first. It says in Deuteronomy 14 that the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Listen, if you can trust God here, in this most sensitive area of your life, where can't you trust Him? Where? We can, if we trust Him here, I can trust Him in any area of my life. I can trust Him with my marriage. I can trust Him with my kids. I can trust Him with my job. I can trust Him with my house and my career, whatever. If I can trust God here, there's no place that I can't allow God to work in areas. He's teaching us to trust Him and not in ourselves or our worldly circumstances. If you want God to work in amazing ways in your life, you've got to be in a place where He can do the work. God wants to prove to you this verse, this one that I'm going to read right now. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If you still have your connection card out, that's the memory verse this week. That's the memory verse. God didn't spare His own Son, His most precious thing for you and me. Why would He not give us the things that we need and that we want? If you memorize that verse, the next time the opportunity arises, the next time we are tempted to compromise and take things into our own hands, we can ask ourselves, do I have to take this or will God provide this for me? Because according to this verse is, God wants to do this in my life. And that's when you see the amazing stories of how God does something in someone's life. Listen, let me close with this story. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. There was a time in Israel's history where they had made it through the bondage of Egypt. Moses had freed them and taken them out. They went through the desert for 40 years and they made it into the promised land. And there they lived in the promised land. And at that time, they weren't ruled by a king. They were ruled by judges, what were called judges. You see, Israel would go through these seasons of time where there would be a period of time where they followed after God because this judge was raised up. And then there were times where they would leave God and be a, kind of apart from Him and do things as they wanted to. They would say that they would do what was ever right in their own eyes. And then they would be disobedient. And so it was one of these times where they were estranged from God when they were doing their own thing and God allowed the, people, the Philistine people to come into the land and to oppress them. And they're like, man, we've got to deliver ourselves. We should go to war with them. Let's go to war with them. And they decide, we're going to take the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to take it with us because it has power. I mean, when, when God would come to visit us at the tabernacle, He would come to the Ark of the Covenant. It's there that we saw His glory. Within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And they're like, if we bring this into war, God's power and His glory is going to go with us. So we're going to go off to war. And they go off against the Philistines and they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. The only thing is they lose. They lose the, the war. And they take, the, you know, Israel scatters back to the land and the Philistines take the Ark of God. And here's what happens. Listen, First Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. When the Philistines took the Ark of God... They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Skip to verse 8. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God away, of uh, God, the God of Israel away. Now the Philistines worshipped this God called Dagon. Dag meaning fish. He was half man and half fish. He had like a head of a fish and he had like a tail of a fish and his torso was of a human. And he represented fertility and reproduction and nature. And they worshipped this God or this statue as it were. And they take the ark, they get the ark and they put it in the same temple with their God. And they're like, woohoo, we just stole Israel's God. Yeah, we got it, right? And they got it in the temple next to their God. And I don't know, maybe they were going to worship it too. I don't know. But they leave it there overnight. And this is great. They leave it there overnight and they come in the next morning and the statue is face down on the floor. And they're like, man, something's fishy here. All right. And they're like, man, maybe the earth like, trembled or there was like an earthquake and somehow he fell over. I don't know. Let's just let's pick him up. And we're going to set him right back here. Everything should be all right. No big deal. They leave and they go out. And then the next day, overnight, they come back in. And this time... The statue is on its face, prostrate before the ark, with no head falling off and no hands on it either. And they're like, Daggone it! That's another joke. Okay. Our God is getting beat up by the God of Israel. Right? Here's the thing that I think is really funny. Right? They find this situation. What do they do? They decide to get rid of the ark. I mean, does it seem strange to you that if two gods get into a fight that you pick the loser, right? It's like, oh, I'll have the loser, please. The one who has no power. I mean, why didn't they just get rid of the Dagon statue instead of the ark? I mean, the, the statue couldn't even defend itself. And God showed him that. Look, it's got no head. It can't give you any wisdom. It can't speak to you. It's got no hands. It can't do anything for you. It's got no power. And like this little ark, the ark of God, did everything. That's where the power lay. Man, if your God gets in a fight with another God and your God loses, I think it's time to change God's, right? Listen, instead of changing their ways, instead of like getting rid of that, they start instead of repenting and worshiping God and making their God the, the God of power, their God, the one that had the control, the one that had the power, they go, no thanks. And it starts doing all this weird stuff in their, neighbor, in, their, uh, in their neighborhood and in their city. And they put it on a cart and they go, see you later. Get out of here. I don't want this. They take the very thing that had power in their life and they send it away. You know, that's exactly what we do when we steal, cheat, or misrepresent. Each time we come to a place, we take the shortcut, or we have the opportunity to take the shortcut, we're hoping to get more, aren't we? Wow, it's free. I didn't have to pay for it. But in reality, we're getting something less. So much less. You see, we're making the choice in that very moment to either keep the ark of God or to keep Dagon. We take the thing that can make the difference, that has the real power, and we move it out of our lives when we choose to do that. Each time it's costing us the opportunity for God to do a real work in our lives. And maybe if we understood this, 
Maybe if we really grasp this, then the areas that we compromise in wouldn't seem so beneficial to us. So what are the areas in your life where you're tending to take the shortcuts? Is it your taxes? Is it your job? Some other area of your life where you're just saying, yeah, it's kind of happening and and on a regular basis. Listen, the next time you think of taking that shortcut, how would your choice be different if you recognized it as an opportunity? An opportunity to see God show up in your life. If you want God to work in incredible ways in your life, you've got to give Him the chance. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You are the living God, a powerful God, the God that no other God can stand up to. Lord, I pray that if there are any of those gods in our lives, that they would be removed. But Lord, I ask You right now to help us be the type of people that You've asked us to be. People of not, who wouldn't compromise. Lord, people that would draw others to You. Lord, it's not easy. But I know, Lord, that with Your help we can do it. It's my prayer for everyone here that they would see You work in their lives in the most powerful ways. That their joy, that their excitement for what You're doing in their life would overflow and they couldn't help but tell everybody about it. Lord, I know it's only a step away for many of us, but it has to begin with trust. So I ask You, help us to trust You more. Lord, I also just want to pray for the people that are here today. There's a lot of things they could have been doing on Memorial Day weekend, but they chose to come here and worship you. May you bless them for that. May you watch over them this week. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.